On January 20th, 1925, Dr. Curtis Welch was making his rounds at the local hospital in Nome, a tiny remote city about halfway up the western coast of Alaska. That afternoon, he checked in on a three-year-old boy named Billy Barnett. Billy was showing a host of alarming new symptoms, sunken eyes, dark lips, and difficulty breathing. And when Dr. Welch saw Billy in that condition, it confirmed this terrible suspicion he had. Billy had a deadly bacterial infection called diphtheria. Within hours, Billy succumbed to his illness. He was the third child Dr. Welch had seen die of the disease. So he sounded the alarm. Nome was stricken with diphtheria. The only way Dr. Welch could stop it was with an antitoxin for the disease. He sent word out pleading for a delivery of antitoxin as soon as possible. And who might the heroic couriers be? But dogs. Sled dogs. Some of these dogs would become legends, but their fame would disguise the darker side of their hero's journey. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanen. 97 years ago this week, in the early morning of February 2nd, 1925, the city of Nome was set to receive its first delivery of life-saving antitoxin transported by dogs, braving the treacherous elements of a freezing Alaskan winter. So stay, stay, stay tuned. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. To tell the story of the journey that became known as the Great Race of Mercy, I'm handing the mic to our producer and dog lover, Sarah Craig. In the freezing cold of a January night in 1925, a little boy named Alfred John was bundled up in his caribou legskin boots, heading to the train station in Nanana, a small settlement in the Alaskan interior. He would always ask his mother, you know, can we go down so I can, you know, wave to the conductor and see what's coming in? And they bundled up and walked down to the station. 
This is Debbie Miller, a longtime Alaskan resident and the author of The Great Serum Race, a children's book about the sled dog journey. She interviewed Alfred later in his life. He remembers thinking how strange it was that there was a dog team that was getting ready to go out in the middle of the night. That was very odd. And then Alfred watched one man unload a package tied up with red ribbons. He saw the package getting strapped onto the sled, getting covered in a black bear hide. Alfred didn't know it, but this package was filled with 300,000 units of diphtheria antitoxin, or serum. It was bound for the small coastal city of Nome, nearly 700 miles directly west of that train station in Anana. Little Alfred was witnessing the start of the great race of mercy. The people of Nome were desperately waiting for this delivery. There were just over a thousand residents there, made up of Alaskan natives and white settlers, many of whom had come to Alaska to strike it rich mining for gold. By the end of January 1925, Nome was in the grips of a diphtheria outbreak. There were over 20 confirmed cases, and children were dying. The only doctor in Nome, Dr. Curtis Welch, had lived there for 18 years, and he hadn't seen anything this bad since the 1918 flu pandemic. He knew how incredibly contagious diphtheria was, and he knew he had no time to lose. He was afraid that the whole young population could be wiped out. He immediately went to the town council and said, you've got to have a quarantine. You've got to close the public schools. Children cannot associate with each other because it's so highly contagious. Diphtheria is much deadlier to children than it is to adults. Nearly 20% of kids who got it during the 20s died. The disease is known as the strangling angel because children's throats get so inflamed that they can suffocate. The bacteria creates toxins that can also enter the heart, causing heart failure and paralysis. And Dr. Welch's only remaining supply of the antitoxin that he needed to treat it had expired. At that point, it was all hands on deck. We need this serum. We need help. And so he sent a telegram. And, you know, it just basically a few words saying, we have an outbreak of diphtheria. Urgently need help. January 22nd. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Getting the antitoxin to Nome would be challenging. They could deliver it by airplane, but it was likely the new flight technology wouldn't be able to withstand the freezing cold. So really, there was just one reliable option. Here's Lainey Salisbury, the co-author of The Cruelest Miles, a book about the sled dog journey. If you wanted to get anywhere in Alaska in 1925, you needed a dog team. A dog team consists of a musher who leads a pack of dogs harnessed to the sled in pairs with a lead dog out front. That dog uses his sense of smell to guide the team. Some mushers used Alaskan Malamutes, tough, strong-boned dogs who could pull a lot of weight but weren't very fast. Others had Siberian Huskies, a breed known for speed and stamina because of their smaller size. Many of the mushers working in Alaska at this time were indigenous, 
and they had inherited centuries of traditional knowledge about how to live with dogs and how to use them to travel. For many Native drivers, I mean, driving a dog team is part of their history. You know, it's something that has been with them for a very long time. It's all based on Native technology. Did you make your own sleds? Uh, yeah, we used to make our own sleds all the time. What did you make them out of? Birch. Mm-hmm. And hickory runners. This is Edgar Nolner, one of the mushers who participated. Nolner isn't alive today, but I found interviews with him and many other mushers in an oral history project archived at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Dog sled technology came from the descendants of Alaska natives who used birch and hickory wood to keep their sleds lightweight. They'd also figured out ways of keeping their dogs' feet protected and preparing the sled's runners with ice so they would glide more easily. But it would be a long shot to get the antitoxin to Nome safely. Everyone was worried that the bottles were going to break, so they got wrapped up in all sorts of sealskin and furs to make sure it had some protection, but they were worried it would freeze. Dr. Welch was also scared that more children would die and that the outbreak would spread outside of Nome. Normally, it would take about 25 days for dogs to make the mail trail run from Nanaina all the way to Nome. They had to figure out a way to speed that up. So they decided on having a relay. A relay would be the only possible way to cover the nearly 700-mile trail in time to stop the disease from spreading. The governor of Alaska sent the orders out via telegram. January 26th. Please engage relay dog teams to carry antitoxin to Tanana and thence to Ruby, there to be met by team from Nome. Stop. Please expedite situation. Reported serious. Stop. Alaska didn't have all that many people at the time, so everyone knew each other. They knew who was reliable and who had a team of dogs big enough in order to take part in this relay. They recruited 20 mushers with their dog teams. Two-thirds were Alaskan natives. Some of them were mail carriers, others freight haulers. Each was asked to cover about 20 to 50 miles of the frozen trail, and they waited for their turn at the closest roadhouse, a type of rest stop. On January 27th, the first musher took off. Wild Bill Shannon left that train station in Nanana and mushed into the dark night. And that little boy, Alfred, he waved goodbye. Shannon traveled 52 miles before handing off the serum to the next musher. And this would continue, roadhouse to roadhouse, musher to musher. While they pressed on through the remote Alaskan wilderness, the rest of the United States was closely tracking their progress. It was making news on the radio and in newspapers across the mainland. Kansas City Star, January 29th. Waiting for Shannon at Tolovana was Jim Calland, another of the North's famous mushers, with a string of fleet dogs Associated and a light press January 30th. Three minutes after reaching Ruby, 350 miles from Ninana, the antitoxin was on its way to Kaltag, 200 miles to the west of Boston Globe, January 30th. At 8 o'clock yesterday morning, the third team was 42 miles from the Yukon River. The trail the mushers traveled followed the Yukon, then the Tanana River, wound its way over the Alaska mountain range, and then hugged the coastline, where conditions were often stormy and treacherous. 
There were few trees to protect from the elements, and there were many river crossings, where one wrong move could mean death. Could you see the trail markings at all? The, the dogs would see them. Couldn't see the dogs, or just like flying above the clouds. <laughs> Hope they knew where they were going. <laughs> this is Charles Evans, an Alaskan Athabascan, interviewed for that same oral history project. He was the 12th musher on the relay, and at this point, he was 325 miles into the nearly 700-mile journey. And what time did you start that run, that ceremony? Four o'clock. In the morning? Yeah. It's dark. <clears throat> 62 below zero, and it's really cold. <laughs> if you didn't catch that, he said it was 62 below. The temperatures were so extreme, Evans lost two of his dogs to the cold, he reportedly harnessed himself to the front of the pack and helped pull the sled. Other mushers were getting frostbitten. Some saw their skin turn black. One musher had to have hot water poured over his mittens because they froze to his sled's handlebars. That, when it was that cold, 60, 50, 60 below, that bothered the dogs quite a bit? I guess so. If you don't force them, it's all right. Mm-hmm. You can't drive them hard, though. They freeze their lungs when you drive them out. They freeze inside, I think. This is the native musher Edgar Nolner again. Nolner had a close relationship with his dogs. He had to, because he was depending on them to make it over the trail. We had seven dogs. Five gray ones and two black ones. The lead dog mm-hmm. were called Dixie. I had good dogs. They were smart dogs, too. These and other smart dogs ended up being the key to the entire race because the worst part of the trail was still to come, a stretch called the Ice Factory. After the break, the sled dogs who become legends. And you just might have heard of one of them. We left the great race of mercy with two-thirds of the relay completed. There was only about 170 miles to go. It was getting really close to Nome, which is still in the throes of the diphtheria epidemic. And that was heavy on the mind of the 18th musher, a Norwegian man named Leonard Seppala. He had a daughter in Nome. And when he picked up the package on January 31st, he wanted to go as fast as possible. Leonard Seppala was a really well-known dog musher. Here's Debbie again, the children's book author. People knew him as being the top racer. He won all the races. So he was the first person that people thought of when they thought of, who's going to take this serum? Who has the best dog team? And it was Leonard. Seppala had assembled a prized team of sled dogs who were known for their speed and their expertise. And the one dog who rose above all the rest was his beloved lead dog named Togo. Togo was a dark brown and gray Siberian husky. You could easily pick him out from the pack because the tip of one of his ears was missing. He was 12 years old at the time of the relay, old for a sled dog. But over those years, he and Leonard developed a special bond that started when Togo was just a puppy. The story goes that Leonard was on a work trip 
and left eight-month-old Toko behind. The next day, he woke up in his campsite, expecting just a normal morning. And who should be there but Togo? And he's like in shock because Togo had jumped over this six-foot-high fence and escaped the kennel and ran something like 75 miles through the night in, a, in blizzard conditions. And he starts thinking, hmm, this dog is a natural-born leader. After that, Togo and Leonard were inseparable. They went on to smash records. Leonard picked up the nickname King of the Trail. So it made sense that Leonard was the obvious choice for the next leg of the relay, the longest and most dangerous section on the trail. It was a section that included a 42-mile stretch across the ice of the Bering Sea. The safe option would be to skirt the sound, since the ice could break up at any moment and Leonard could drown or drift out to sea. But if he chose to cross, he would save at least a day's drive. He knew that every hour counted. He wanted to get that serum to Nome as fast as he possibly could, so he took the risk. Togo navigated the ice through a pitch-black blizzard with deafening winds. Leonard had to trust him. The worst thing a musher could do would be to second-guess their dogs, because they're cued into things that the musher isn't aware of. How ice shifts under their feet, or the direction of the trail during a whiteout. They reached land at 8 o'clock that evening, after an incredibly exhausting 84-mile day. That night, Seppala could hear the ice on the sound exploding, which sounded like gunshots. Debbie says he was lucky to have crossed when he did. The next day, the wind blew all the ice that they had traveled across out to sea. You know, in a matter of hours, they could have been gone. In the end, they carried the serum more than twice the distance of any other musher, 91 miles. When Seppala got to the next roadhouse, he handed the serum to the next musher, who then handed it to another Norwegian man. Gunnar Kassen. In Kassen's 24 years in Nome, he had never faced conditions like these. With wind speeds reaching over 70 miles per hour, and snow was coming down fast. If Kassen didn't leave now, the trail would become impassable with snowdrifts. He knew he didn't have time to wait. Off they went with the Serum, and they ran into serious winds, brutal winds. At one point, the the sled flipped over in the wind, and the serum went flying out of the sled. And there's very little visibility because of the blowing snow. And at at one point, he takes off his mittens, and he's just grasping through the snow, trying to feel the package. And he's thinking for, you know, a few moments that the serum's gone. But he, you know, groped and found it, lashed it back onto the sled and kept on going. The wind was so strong that Kassen couldn't call directions to his two lead dogs, Balto and Fox. He relied on them to find the trail on their own, sniffing it out through the snow, the wind, and the pitch dark. On February 2nd, as dawn was rising over the tundra, Balto and Fox led the Serum into Nome, 
heading straight for the doctor's door. It was very early hours of the morning, and he knocked on the door, and Dr. Welsh was pretty shocked and amazed that the serum was there, that it had, they had done it in five and a half days. Dr. Welch immediately took the package to the hospital to warm it up. Within a few hours, the serum was clear and ready for use. Welch started giving it to the patients who had the worst cases. The day after the serum was delivered, newspapers all over the U.S. went wild with the story, publishing celebratory articles about the successful relay. And one dog seemed to be getting all the glory, Balto. The Centralia Courier, February 13th. In the race to Nome, Balto picked out the trail when Kassen could not even see his wheel dog because of the blinding snowstorm. The value of such a dog cannot be estimated in dollars and cents. He appeared in parades and people wanted to take his picture. Then they decided to build a statue of him in Central Park, which was quite a honor. So he became a celebrity. This is why you might have heard of Balto. His celebrity status lasted through the 90s and into today. He was even voiced by Kevin Bacon in an animated film in 1995. I'm not watching the race. I'm running it. Hey! They're starting. Wish me luck. Balto! Whoa! What are you, nuts? Steel kids is around here. He's going to turn you into kibble. Let us let the half go. You'd think this would be the end of the story. A successful relay, children saved, and a hero dog that was celebrated throughout the country for his bravery. But back in Nome, after the race was over, lots of people were dissatisfied that Balto was getting all the credit, including Leonard Seppala. He felt Balto was a newspaper dog and that Togo was the, the real, true Alaskan lead dog that deserved all the world's attention. And I, I think that's why Leonard Seppala became so upset when the wrong dog got all the glory, as he put it. He wanted Togo to get the credit. Later in his life, he talked about his love for Togo in an interview with the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. My dog Togo, who was the best dog I ever had, only weighed 50 pounds, but he was terribly strong and fast. Giving credit where credit is due is one of the best ways we can recognize someone's hard work, someone's heroism. It's a way of signaling which virtues we as a society hold important. In this case, lending a helping hand to those in need and putting your life on the line to do so. Togo was the dog that led his team over the longest and most dangerous section of the relay. And it makes sense that Seppala wanted the American public to honor him for his skills and his effort. But if we all agreed that Togo was the only one who should have gotten the fame and the attention, that wouldn't be the full truth either. There's more of the story that needs to be broken wide open. I think it's important to, to understand that the serum run was a genuinely historic, heroic thing. This is Paul Ongtuguk. He's Inuit and native to Northwest Alaska. He's also the former director of the Alaskan Native Studies Department at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. And he heard about this story from his father. But the pioneer Alaska version, which predominates, does leave out 
almost all the mushers who, who were involved in actually making the serum run happen. And it leaves out the traditional knowledge that made the dog team routes possible in the first place. The native mushers weren't given their fair share of the credit for their sacrifice and heroism. But while I was reporting this story, I learned that credit wasn't the only thing that native communities in Alaska were robbed of. I thought this was a story about an epidemic in Nome, that diphtheria had been contained within the city's boundaries, that the children had been saved, and that was the end of it. But when I talked to Paul, I realized that there were other epidemics around this time, close to Nome. Paul's father, who was Inuit, was a young boy during the diphtheria epidemic and was witness to similar epidemics that went unnoticed and unreported. My dad had stories that at one time they were in Seneca, Alaska, a village up the coast. Um, And the sickness was so dramatic that people had to dig a mass grave. They couldn't individually take care of them. My, my great uncle and my granddad and my dad was one of seven siblings that survived the, the epidemic and watched as they were burying the rest, virtually the rest of the community. Paul says that one of the reasons the death tolls were so high in these native communities was because medical help was prioritized for white residents. It's ironic when you consider that the medicine wouldn't have made it to Nome without the knowledge of the native mushers who participated and without the use of native technology. The birchwood sleds to carry the serum, the squirrel skin parkas and reindeer boots known as mukluks to keep the mushers warm. The newspaper articles, the movies, even the bronze statues, they all missed the real story. It's not about Balto, or about Togo. It's not about who gets the credit. It's about who received the help and who didn't. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and CSP Media. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig. Next week, it's Valentine's Day, and we got some special messages for you. Messages in a bottle. It's a metaphor. We're all sort of alone, but we're not alone at being alone. And that's the ocean out there full of messages and bottles, which to me, I envision them as just friends I haven't met yet. The rest of our team is producer Amy Padula. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to John Aulai, one of the mushers who participated but whose name was never reported. 
to Robin Russell, Matilda Hughesby, Osa Carlson, Megan Abate, Kevin Keeler, Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, Alaska and Polar Regions Collection and Archives Oral History Program, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. You will not believe this, but there is a large raven outside my window uh-huh. calling. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I guess, should we, are you hearing the raven? Oh, he just flew away. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs>